to the Messy Reformation. My name's Jason Rice. I'm the lead pastor at Faith Community CRC in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. My co-host is Willie Cronkey. He's a member at PCRC in Pease, Minnesota. We're just a couple of guys who love the Christian Reformed Church and want to see Reformation happen in our denomination. But we know that whenever Reformation has happened in the history of the church, it's always messy. And as we see Reformation happening now in the Christian Reformed Church, things are getting messy. So we're taking the opportunity to talk to pastors throughout the Christian Reformed Church to find out what's going on in our denomination, but also to talk about what Reformation might look like. We're so thankful for all of you who are faithfully listening every week and faithfully sharing it with those who would benefit from it. Keep up the good work. These conversations are continuing to spread throughout the Christian Reformed Church and Reformation is happening, so keep it up and thank you. If you haven't already, take a moment, click subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming content. We are dropping episodes every single Monday. With all that said, we're going to get to this week's show, which is part two of our conversation with David Fettis. As someone who's kind of grown up in the Christian Reformed Church and, and grown up in a Christian Reformed family, what do you think some of the strengths are of the Christian Reformed Church? Well, historically, I think that some of those strengths, uh, you know, of family, of of shaping children in your own household was, you know, I, I'm not in a very good position to say, hey, now I have a full bird's eye view of the whole denomination to see how we're still doing. Sometimes I, you know, wonder whether parents don't do that um, as much, but I, I don't know. But I think that was a historic strength. And mm-hmm. connected with that was, a um, you know, an emphasis on Christian education. Uh, sometimes it could get overblown where, you know, there was almost a sociological sense that if you didn't send your kid to a Christian school, there was something seriously wrong with you and it might be a little too quick to judge and and not very welcoming to somebody who didn't have that perspective if they were coming in and joining the church, you know, but having said all that, uh, you know, sometimes every, you know, each strength can have its corresponding weakness if you're not careful about it, but, but it was a strength to value the life of the mind, to see that um, education is really more the calling of the parents than of the government. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that, that was an important principle that, that the Christian Reformed Church historically held to, that a lot of parents in the communities did when they banded together. Uh, the, uh, one of the challenges, to get back to one of the weaknesses, um, I know that uh, in, the, in the 70s, to take one example, I believe it was um, one of the schools here in the Chicago area, was trying to keep out black students. One of the Christian mm-hmm. schools, which is not the ultimate in Christian um, handling of things. No. And I know my predecessor Joel Naderhood said that he marched with some of the teachers that wanted to that wanted to make sure that all students, whatever background, were welcome at the school. And he said there were several churches in the area that did not invite him to preach for ten years after that. So Whoa. you know that, that's some of that's some of the awkwardness. Um, you yeah. know that we're still. Um, you know, that, that's some of the, the downside because you could get a, it, it could, in the name of being devoted to the Christian training of children, it could be, let's keep us Dutch folks together and keep all those polluting influences out. And it was not theologically polluting influences. It, it was more racially or ethnically 
Mm -hmm. uh, you know, maybe I'm overstating it, but, but I know, you know, from Joel telling me that, that that was a factor, you know, that goes back 50 years uh, by now, but I, it doesn't always go back 50 years in my own community. It wasn't, this wasn't Christian reform, the Christian reform schools, but I know in a uh, nearby town, um, it's barely 10 years ago that a good friend of mine, he's president of the board now, in fact, of Christian leaders, James Hunt, a black pastor, he, um, he was going to start a church in town and they bought an existing church building. And all of a sudden that building wasn't fit for people to use for services anymore. And there was one excuse after another, why it wouldn't work anymore. And they had to make a, you know, they were told to make all these expensive upgrades. And finally during one um, conversation, um, somebody at a town meeting, somebody said, well, the, the members of the town council have been coming to me and asking how we can keep the N word out of town. So, you know, this isn't just ancient, Whoa. history um you know that now that this i mean the the challenges of of racism and of racial exclusion um are things that uh, we need to continue to be conscious of so you you asked me what are some of the strengths of the christian form church i think one of its strengths did have a very strong corresponding weakness that sometimes in the name of good theological or covenantal reasons it became very inward and exclusive and for lack of a better word racist um, in in dealing with these matters and even even when there wasn't you know the overt racism or um you know wanting to enslave anybody uh, the saying you ain't if you ain't dutch ain't much isn't isn't the ultimate in inclusiveness no uh, so, no <laughs> you know it, it wasn't just a matter of white supremacy it was dutch supremacy in particular yeah you know, that, and so it, that may happen with you know, not to make any excuses for sin, but I do wonder whether other immigrant cultures had similar challenges. You know, when when you're an immigrant community and you get very tight with each other and you're supporting yourself in an environment that's um, that's new to you, um, yeah. whether there's a certain ingrownness just to support each other that that can get sickly on you. So, yeah. I think the Christian Reformed Church, you know, it's familial ties. Um, its devotion to covenant, its um, system of Christian education, some of those, and and go back to some of the things I mentioned earlier. My mom and dad were involved in like World Renew, um, World Missions, the the support of you know whatever we want to say about the racism. There were there were people who wanted the gospel spreading all over the world to people of every language and background, and and doing their level best to do it. And so there was also, you know, for a not really big denomination, there was a lot of missionary vision and a lot of desire to see um, God's kingdom advance, to see more and more people come to know Jesus as Savior. So, uh, you know, it's a, it, there are parallels almost to the way you uh, evaluate American history. There are some wonderful and honorable things in our history and in our roots to build on. There are some others to say, uh, shouldn't have been that way. And let's do our best, you know, where we are in our moment of time to do better in that area. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. I think you're right. Uh, not to also not to excuse sin, but you can see it as you go around the United States, how all of these different immigrant, you know, they, they bunch together naturally, you know, the, the Dutch immigrants kind of bunched together and formed all these little, uh, Dutch, I was calling Dutch ghettos. And so, I mean, the moment you said you grew up in Montana as a CRC person, I went, oh, he grew up by Churchill. Yeah. Um, cause, cause that's just this little Dutch ghetto in Montana. Right. But you also see 
Um, so right now I'm in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. And so north of me is Wapan, which is a little Dutch kind of area. But but Beaver Dam is not. It's a little German. And so the Germans came in and they started Beaver Dam. And so the, our community is full of Catholic and Lutheran churches because they, they came together. They found each other. They spoke the same language. They knew each other. It's kind of a natural. It is a survival instinct that kind of happens there. It's not good um, necessarily, but it was necessary for a time. And now we see some of that. Um, some of that changing, yeah. but yeah. It's not a bad thing to have um, to build up those who are close to you, but when it turns into exclusiveness, that's when it gets to be a harmful thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I've seen that and in, uh, it's interesting to see. Um, I've talked to a lot of people who grew up during that, that era where it was um, definitely more exclusive, right? There's pictures of me as a kid wearing shirts that say, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> you've had that motto emblazoned across your I chest, have. repent. <laughs> yeah. Amen. I have repented, but okay. the interesting thing is, is I, I grew up in that, but then I almost, uh, my dad want, was so frustrated with all of that. Um, and so he pulled me out. And so I almost didn't get any of my Dutch heritage, which is kind of interesting. And so, and I actually grew up out in Montana. I grew up in between Manhattan and Three Forks. So kind of where you were at. And, uh, and I, uh, I didn't get much of my Dutch heritage. And then I moved back to Minnesota to, to Pease, Minnesota, where, where my Dutch immigrant family landed and helped start the town, the church, the school, you know, all of that, the, yeah. the Dutch. And then I started getting all of my Dutch heritage and going, man, this is really good, good stuff. Like it's not, you can elevate it to a level that's not helpful, but I also found myself being kind of rooted and grounded when I started understanding some of my Dutchness yeah. as well. Well, now you and I are into Dutch bingo because, you know, you were in Montana and I did my first summer assignment in Pease. Uh, Minnesota. Oh. <laughs> so I was there for 10 weeks. I knew some people with your last name and, um, you know, so yeah, I, yeah. I've been, I've been there, done that in Pease. I've been in later on, I preached in Beaver Dam and Wapan and, you know, a lot of those places when I was <laughs> preaching around as back to God, our minister as well. Amen. Well, that's cool. Yeah. I, that is one of the things, you know, I, uh, people who are outside of the CRC come in and they start hearing the Dutch bingo thing. And they're like, what in the world is going on here? You guys are all related somehow, but um, it's, I think it's the beauty of a smaller connected denomination. Actually. I love it that I can go, um, you know, at this point in my life, and I'm still fairly young, but I can go anywhere in the United States almost and be connected with somebody I know in the Christian Reformed church. It's, it's a really, it is a, a strength of a small denomination. What uh so kind of switching gears again. So as you look at some of what, I guess the question I have is what are some of the concerns that you're seeing throughout the CRC right now, as you look at what's been happening over the last maybe decade or so, and then maybe what's coming up over the next five to 10 years. Um, you know, to be honest, I haven't followed certain things as closely as I once did. You know, I was, I once worked for a denominational agency and was on um you know, I was on one of its committees, uh, one that may give me a little bit of concern. Ironically, um, it used to be called the um, Committee for World Hunger Action. Mm. Um, I was on that committee a while, and then it became the Committee for World Hunger Action and Social Justice. And then it became the Office of Social Justice. And, mm. you know, over the years, it's, uh, you know, there seemed to be morphing into some different um, things. So, 
you know, in light of what we've just said about racial concerns and the like, you know, obviously uh, matters of oppression or injustice uh, are, are important, but I, I think that sometimes the church has gotten too uh, politicized in its um, denominational offices. Um, and so that's one area where it seemed that the church became to get more and more involved in what sort of advocacy with government might be appropriate, where we're weighing in on such things, for example, as climate change. You know, I'm one of those codgers. You asked me the last 10 years, but I'm a codger. I remember when global cooling was the great scare. And when you've been through the global cooling scare, you don't instantly go into a panic when you're told all the smart guys are saying that global warming is going to kill us all. (laughs) You say, well, okay, whichever the case is, you know, whatever the truth of the matter is, I don't have that from divine revelation. And so I don't really maybe have much of a word to say on it. I think that is one of the, one of the keys is to speak when the Bible speaks and to, let, um, if it's a matter of good judgment or prudence or our best guesses, then leave that to those who are in the business of guessing, you know, or finding evidence for science rather than weighing in with all the authority of the church on whether we think the, deg- the global climate is going to change by half a degree centigrade or go up five degrees or go down seven degrees. Uh, we don't know. Okay. And yeah. we pastors have had no special training in that whatsoever. And so to be sounding off on very complex um, economic, political, or meteorological matters is something that we would be better off not doing. At the same time, we ought to not, um, we ought to be more forthright and firm on some other matters. Uh, You know, obviously the human sexuality report, which our synod will be um, considering soon is dealing with matters. Uh, I know some people like to deny it, but but for for 2000 years, the church has had a pretty stable view of what marriage is and what God's will for human sexuality is. Um, sex is for marriage between a man and a woman who are committed to each other for life is the ideal, um, you know, and that hasn't wavered much in, in 2000 years of church history. So I'm not ready to change my mind on that, or, you know, for 10 years. And, there, you know, the, I guess, I, I don't think maybe it's that helpful for me to give my subjective opinion on it, but sometimes I, maybe it's just my take on it, but sometimes I get a sense that some pastors should read the Bible more. And that's not meant to be a snotty statement. It's that the way they talk doesn't sound like somebody who spends a lot of time in the scriptures and is familiar, mm-hmm. you know, is just kind of um, soaked in the Bible. You don't mm-hmm. talk that way. Um, you don't even consider certain things if you're soaked in the way the Bible teaches and in the way the church has understood the Bible for all of those years. And again, so that that's maybe more of an impression. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be too quick to judge colleagues in ministry or others in the church. But, um, you know, I again, I'm old enough, you know, I've been in the ministry over 30 years of the Christian Reformed Church. So I remember some of the earlier battles uh, in, in 95, when the church was getting ready to decide whether or not to ordain women, um, the president of Calvin Seminary said, why would anybody be at all concerned that taking that step would make us light more likely to move in the direction of ordaining homosexual persons? And um, you know, what, you know, how, why would anybody be more concerned about that than saying that in a few years, we're going to be ordaining burglars? Um, and I said, well, 
there aren't any burglars pride parades. You know, yeah. I, I responded in an article in the Calvin Seminary Forum, you know, they aren't having burglars pride parades. And if you look at where the push is to take the next step in um, changing our views on what is appropriate um, for uh, male and female and um, sexuality in general, you'll find that there are zero churches that hold to the traditional view of ordination that are also moving towards the ordination of homosexuals. You will find quite mm -hmm. a few more who took the one step and then took the next. There might, even if you argue there's not a logical connection, there's certainly a sociological connection. You know, it's 25 years later, I'll let you be the judge of which of us, you know, had a clearer sense of where the denomination might be pointing. Because I, now we have, uh, as I understand it, one third of the faculty of Calvin University does not want the human sexuality report to be a confessional matter or required of those who teach on its faculty. Um, that's, that's a serious matter. But it's yeah. not just a matter related to sexuality. It's a matter that goes into view of scripture um, and and willingness to experiment also with what you might, I mean, we used to call it, the back to God hour used to say, you know, that we're preaching the historic Christian faith. We had a, we had a sense of what had been held by most Christians throughout most eras throughout history. And you don't tinker with that just because you think that it was a great idea over the last few years. You, you better have weighty, weighty reasons for um, changing the church's belief and practice when there are 2000 years of of scriptural study that have got us to the point we're at now. So anyway, Amen. that's my little, um, you know, my little rant, you know, I don't want to over, you know, over judge the, the denomination, because as I said, it's been about 15 years um, since I was deeply involved in committees and denominational affairs. And I, to be honest, I haven't spent a lot of my time trying to battle what I thought were negative trends in the CRC. Uh, you know, I, I did in the past, and I've written an overture here and there. But I've, to be honest, my goal is on multiplying, okay? Outgrow, mm -hmm. outmultiply whatever um, those whose theological perspective I think is incorrect. I, I want to multiply leaders and multiply Christians and, and win new converts to Christ. And it's, it's worth doing. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that one should never um, resist theological error or those who are trying to bring it into the church, we certainly should. You know, I once was told by somebody, you should only preach the positive truth. Don't um, denounce error. And I thought for a moment, I said, well, if you can show me one prophet or one apostle who followed that advice, then I will. But I don't know of any. Uh, when, no. when preaching truth, there was always an identification of error as well. So you, that is part of the task. But having said that, um, in terms of my own investment of my time and energy and resources, it's been more on equipping leaders and training and trying to expand rather than um, resist, you know, certain negative trends. I, you know, I'm part of that. I'm involved with some people who want to encourage a, a biblical um, fidelity within the Christian Reformed Church. But um, but I'm still maybe more mission minded, um, you know, in terms of my overall investment of energy. Amen. Yeah, I want to jump back and just connect some of the dots because I, I really appreciated when you um, I know you said it tentatively. You didn't want to like 
throw a massive judgment out on pastors, but talking about the importance of reading God's word more and the way that it shapes the way you speak and think and, and act. And, and I kept thinking about, um, you know, one of the um, kind of concerns you had about the office of social justice is there may be shouting about areas where the Bible's not necessarily clear on, but areas where the Bible is clear, we're kind of hesitant and, and maybe whispering on. I was, um, Wyma had this, we always called it a Wyma-ism that he always said, you know, we should shout where the Bible shouts and, and whisper where the Bible whispers. And, uh, and, and you engage in culture that way by being shaped by just reading God's word. If you're in God's word all the time, you know where the Bible's really clear on certain things and you can speak that boldly and with confidence. And you also know where the Bible's maybe a little less clear. And so we can, we can speak about those things, but not speak with force. And, and one of the frustrations I've had and others have had, and you pointed out is especially the office of social justice, but even just some of the communications coming from the broader denomination right now seem to be shouting on certain matters that are really up for debate, but certain matters that are really clear, like the issue of abortion and the issue of, of uh, homosexuality. Um, we, we still, tr- the denomination tries to hold a con- this, our official stance, but they always are just kind of sneaking it in the background, not, not out heralding like abortion is murder, right? Or, or homosexual marriage is not a thing. We say, they say more like, well, yeah, we hold to the original position of 1973, but, and then the, the shouting part of their talk is all about, well, we need to have this and that and that. And they're, they're actually shouting aspects of scripture that probably should be more whispered. Yeah. Um, and, and what you choose to denounce, uh, I'll take an example that I think, um, you know, is kind of heartbreaking. You know, a couple of hundred bodies of children were found at a you know, near a um, boarding school in British Columbia of, of Native children, which, you know, was a heartbreaking, um, heartbreaking thing. And, you know, all of our Canadian um, officials of the Christian Reformed Church signed a letter, you know, um, expressing their distress over that. And that may well have been an appropriate response. Um, a year or two ago in our area in Crete, uh, a doctor died. He was an abortion doctor. So they're going over his property and in his garage are 3000 corpses of wow. babies he'd killed. That made the news for about one day and got no attention from, you know, from the churches and, and the like. So again, I'm, I'm just saying there are what we choose to focus and zoom in on and make a lot of noise about, I would echo what you had to say that, you know, we're, we're pretty selective about that. And, and sometimes on the matters where the Bible is quite clear, we haven't quite changed our position yet, but if you don't talk, many things die of silence. I'll I'll give you an example. Uh, If somebody never talks about hell they are not denying the doctrine of eternal punishment. They just never talk about it. And so people will never, people who hear them preach will never have been warned of what happens to the wicked and unrepentant. Yeah. Um, 
and and there and there are other doctrines that that are like that that will die not of direct contradiction but of neglect uh, they're simply never preached about so it's one of the tests of what you really really believe is what do you actually talk about and emphasize and um you know that that is you know, to, and and I don't talk about hell all the time, and it's not the center of of my thought. Uh, God is, and when we proclaim the Bible, but but if you have a God, if you read, that's one of the things that I mean when something doesn't quite sound right. When when people talk about God of the Bible as a sugary God, who you know, when he sounds too much like a middle aged female therapist, then you wonder whether the Bible has been getting read much lately. Because mm-hmm. there are those passages where, where God obliterates entire civilizations that have um, that have been so wicked. So you know that's that's what I mean. Where you know we have to be careful because uh, you know I I probably would tend towards the more conservative end of the church. But there again, when I went through seminary and early in ministry, I would have been considered um, very middle of the road. I think. I don't think I've changed much. And now there are some who consider me a very right-wing reactionary. And I don't think that I have shifted very much. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I'm older than you. So just take that for what it's worth. It seems to me <laughs> that it's very possible the denomination shifted a little bit over yeah. those 30 years that I was in ministry. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've talked to a number of people who felt the same way. They said, I don't think I've really moved, but I, I, I was kind of a middle of the roader. And now I'm people are calling me out as being uh, a raging conservative. And they're like, I don't think I've moved. I feel like the, the ground is shifting out from under me right now. Yeah. And it's not that I, you know, I'm not that conservative on matters like, you know, the worship wars and what kind of music is the best. Hey, when I went to visit Nigeria, the only um instrument they had in several of those churches I visited was a drum I don't mm-hmm. I, you know I don't I don't get hung up on what kind of instruments are being used or what kind of vestments are being used or uh, you know the, the the cultural variety that is out there among Christians in the way they express their praise to the Lord those things um, I I don't make a big deal of but there are there are the doctrinal and ethical matters that the that when they shift, it is a major and very serious matter. And I think some of those, the ground has been shifting and we need to be very, very alert to that. You know, I honestly, for myself, um, what our denominational agencies have been up to, I haven't been as supportive of uh, lately. And I'm more, I sometimes feel more kinship with the eight or 10 pastors in our area, none of whom belong to my denomination, but we pray together every Wednesday morning and we work together on some local um, community things. And, you know, one of them is a, a Messianic Jewish rabbi. And um, one is the pastor of a missionary Baptist, predominantly black church. And, you know, that, and, you know, another, you know, uh, again, he wouldn't affirm the canons of Dort. He's a, he's a free Methodist, um, but, you know, overall evangelical and biblical in a, in a lot of ways, but the, you know, but they, when we pray together, I get, I still get a sense that there's a lot of commonality. And maybe it'd help if I were praying a little more with my fellow denominational people and mm. saw them more. You know, they're, they're, they're just the bonds of affection and mutual prayer might do some good 
there too. But but local um, local kinship, local um, cooperation has come to mean you know a lot more to me maybe than it once did, and maybe denominational ties have come to mean a little bit less than they once did. And it may be partly that of a function that I'm not in a and as quite as homogeneous a community as I grew up in, you know, that may be part of it too, but um, take those comments for what they're worth. Yeah. I know. I, that was one of the things of, uh, of COVID that actually ended up being a good thing for me is it grabbed me and I grabbed a bunch of the local pastors in our community who um, we had a lot of affinity and we, we got together regularly and prayed together and worked through things and, we're at, what are you guys doing? How are you responding? We all kind of banded together as pastors in the community. And that was really good. And you're right. I felt, um, I have felt a lot of, I, one of the guys is part of the E-Free Church in town. And uh, we have a really close bond, probably closer than I do with with a number of pastors um, in our own denomination. And, uh, and we disagree fairly strongly on certain theological issues like um, end times and baptism and whatever, but but on some of these core issues that are going on right now with sexuality and and uh, critical race theory, all that kind of stuff, we we have a real tight bond, and we can come to God's word, and we can really work through things together and have a good conversation, and that's been a has been a huge blessing. Yeah, the you know sometimes the challenge again, I I get even when we disagree, say on um, a view of the millennium, take that as one example. Uh, I sense that that uh, here I'm with some brothers who are wrestling with what the Bible has to say and letting the Amen. Bible wrestle with them. There's other situations where I think, are you even paying attention to the Bible? Your entire agenda is being set um, by something that is not much uh, biblical revelation. So in a sense, I'd almost rather have an argument over the Bible and realize that I'm that I'm dealing with a brother, you know, disagreeing over a lesser matter of, of understanding a particular strand of biblical teaching than somebody who's just ditching the Bible and 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 not only ditching it, sometimes dissing it. Let's face it. Um, there are there are within our own denomination people who there's Bible passages. They just they just chuck them and yeah. they're willing to do so. And uh, so, yeah, I, there, there's times when I felt, boy, I, I might even be closer to the Catholics than I am to some of the, some of my fellow clergy in my own denomination, because um, I don't know, for lack of a better word, there doesn't seem to be fear of God before their eyes or, you know, high regard for scripture and um, a sense that eternal things matter more than temporal things. And mm. So, you know, we've, we've talked about a lot of stuff. I, I guess my main, you know, I, I, if I had to zero it down rather than just talk about this, that, or the other thing, I really do at the core believe that we need tremendous, uh, you know, here and I'll sound charismatic because maybe I am a little, uh, you know, I really do believe in the need for the great um, reviving power of the Holy Spirit, not just Amen. doctrinal reform, though that's needed, and ethical straightening out, but a sense of the life of God in us again, and the power of God, and and the joy of the Lord, and the fruit of the Spirit, and, and just the relationship with God, and the walking with God in the sense that God is at work among us. You know, if that, if that were to occur, some of the other problems might begin to also uh, be more straightened out, uh, and so 
that is really my prayer for the church is, is new revival, new life for our denomination, and along with that reinvigoration of our theological commitments and of our commitment to holiness and of not conforming to the world. Uh, but, but I think at the heart of it is just the life of God you know, among us, really growing and empowering us again. That's all we have for this week. Stay tuned next week for our conversation with Dan Winyarski. Until then, don't forget, this is Christ's church, and he bought it with his blood. And we've been warned that wolves will come in trying to destroy the flock. So keep a close watch on your life and on your doctrine. Preach the word in season and out of season. And keep fighting the good fight in this messy reformation. Reformation.